0: Well, that's true, isn't it? Problem is that often when God speaks, we're not listening. If you're a parent, you get that. You say, You hear me? Huh? Huh? Do you hear me? Uh huh. What I say? Uh huh. And you know, that's the way it is for us as children of God. We go to church and we have small groups and we read devotions, but a lot of times through the issues of life, God is trying to speak to us and encourage us and to direct us and we're not listening. We're not hearing what God's trying to tell us through the situations. We say, oh, well, that's just what happens and we come up with all kinds of worldly cliches to explain away the situation. Uh, this morning, uh, as we open God's Word to Luke, chapter 3, uh, it's been a very interesting week. Uh, it has been a very heavy, heavy week. I'm thankful for Marty filling in for us last Sunday, and uh, he did an adequate job. Um, I hope he sees this. And uh, I was texting him during that, but he did a fantastic job. I'm thankful for our Georgia Baptist missionaries that are serving with distinction and faithfulness. And I am so thankful to have him as our uh, church wellness catalyst uh, in the state of Georgia. Uh, My best friend, uh, Dr. Merritt, Marcus Merritt, he is... uh, Right now he doesn't have a suit and tie on. Uh, he has his leathers on. And he's standing in a booth in Sturgis, South Dakota uh, for the 12th year in a row presenting the gospel uh, where they come into the booth and uh, they draw them in through drawings and things like that. And uh, they, they say, you can put your name in for this. They've given uh, brand new Harleys away for many years. And they say, you can put your name in if you'll give us three minutes. And in those three minutes, they share the gospel. And already, uh, just in the last two days, there have already been uh, dozens uh, come to know Christ through that effort. And so I'm thankful for the men and women who are serving the Lord faithfully in the midst of everything going on in this world. Uh, As Marty filled in for us last week, uh, we moved Emily, not back to college, but to graduate school, and uh, it was a little different. We're moving, we moved her into a, uh, apartments off campus, uh, away from the school, and it was it was really uh, odd when I called her Friday and I said, "What are you doing?" She said, oh, "I just got home from work." That just sounded so odd, uh, but. Monday morning we got up and Becky went to Chick-fil-A and got us some coffee. And from that time when I started drinking my coffee until I pulled in the driveway that night, uh, I'd received news of four different deaths, Uh, deaths that ranged in age and from different situations, people hurting all over, people who were going to the hospital, people who were sick. People who were facing great, great struggles. And you know, for several weeks, we have been preaching sermons with kind of a one-word topic. Whether it's been joy, real joy, influence, where we talked about Esther and Mordecai. And this morning, I want us to look at hope. Something we all desperately need. I don't know about you, but my heart yearns for hope. It seems like every day we wake up and it's not the same. It's almost like it's worse. And the truth is, the truth is no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. No one. I don't care how many degrees they have behind their name. I don't care what background they come from. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We just don't. But we do know who holds it. And that's what I want to draw into perspective today. Into our focus is seeing where our hope resides. Today we'll read words of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. But we read his words as he recites Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah, we see the prophecy of God in His sovereign might judging Israel. Now understand, when John the Baptist came on the scene, there had been over 400 years of silence. No prophets, no no any kind of real spiritual large-scale movement. God had been silent for over 400 years. Not one word was inspired to be written during that time. And now God has empowered the last Old Testament prophet to come onto the scene and proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah wrote that in the midst of God's sovereign power to exact judgment on a sinful people and an evil world, There would be comfort. The very first thing he says in Isaiah 40 is comfort. Comfort the people, comfort. you, You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know what comfort is. We talk about our comfort foods, you know. What is your comfort food? Macaroni and cheese? Mine is Becky's chicken and dumplings or real mashed potatoes. Anytime, any season, I don't feel good, whatever, mashed potatoes. Mashed potatoes, hot, salty, buttered mashed potatoes. But what is our comfort for our soul? When food won't satisfy it, when relationships won't satisfy it. Listen, God has stripped us clean of the crutches of life, has he not? I mean, we don't know about school. We don't know about ball. We don't know about this and we don't know about that. People are losing their jobs. People are struggling in every kind of way, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We have been stripped clean for God to get our attention. But I want you to understand something today in the midst of a pandemic. And whether it's a global pandemic Or it's just an absolute disaster in your life or in your home. There's hope. There's hope. And God wants to provide that comfort. I find it very intriguing that the first words we really hear from the last Old Testament prophet is that there will be comfort. He reads from Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort from the father for his children. The prophecy of this comfort would provide hope to a seemingly hopeless situation. Does that sound familiar? What seems to be hopeless? They did not know when this would fully come to pass, but those who were living in faith knew it would still come. Abraham never saw what God had promised to him Did God not fulfill the promise? No, God fulfilled the promise to the T. He saw it afar off. Father Abraham. Moses never put his foot inside, but he saw it from afar off, up on the mount. God fulfills his promise. Listen, they looked ahead to that country. And I want us to relay that in the spiritual sense to our own life as we hear the words that last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Now, some of you may say, you keep saying the last Old Testament prophet. We're in the New Testament. We are in the New Testament book, but we have not yet in this reading come to the new covenant. It had not been fulfilled until Jesus dies on the cross. There's shedding of blood and there's a resurrection. For there must be for a New Testament, Hebrews For a New Testament, there must be the death of the testator. And Jesus had not died yet, so they're still living under the Old Covenant. The temple worship's still going on. The the animal sacrifices, all that stuff is still going on. So John the Baptist, six months the elder to Jesus, is born under the Old Covenant. He is the last Old Covenant prophet. And yet he would be the one to proclaim the Savior. As we look at having real hope, not hope and I read this, and you know me, I, I'm, I'm not a gambler. never bought a lottery ticket in my life. Don't plan on it, work too hard for it, don't believe in luck. But I found this very humorous that said, the what, what we hear, you know about. Well, by this date, we'll, we'll have a vaccine. By this date, we believe that the curve will flatten and all this kind of stuff is beginning to sound like when I win the lottery. And I found that as kind of a light note to a very heavy situation, but it does. We don't know, you know. I, I'm one of those that says, well, we'll probably get a vaccine about a week after the election. I don't know that. I know we never got a vaccine for the flu. We don't have a cure for cancer. But the truth is that the great physician is in control no matter what. No matter what we may face tomorrow. And so I want us to hear about the hope that is found not in vaccines, but in the cure. Jesus Christ. First of all, let us be hope-filled. Notice with me in Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetriarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, now, they're establishing this, and you say, why do they got to have all that? It's putting a time stamp on when this happened in history. When the world, and especially the world we're living in today, denies all history, and what they can't deny, they tear down and remove. Because if they can tear down and remove it, then out of sight is out of mind. But what God did here in the scripture is, he established a timestamp. Ananias or Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Now I want you to notice what he begins with, quoting Isaiah 40. In verse 4 he says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Can I give you a quick snippet of advice dealing with the issues of life? There's a lot in the world in trouble today for things they have said publicly. Things that they don't realize everybody's watching and everybody's listening. Careers have been wrecked because of something that was posted 15 years ago or written in an op-ed or a white paper 25 years ago. I know that I brought myself trouble by things that I may have put out there or things that I may have said in my opinion. Can I give you some very sage advice? Let us follow What John says here, as it is written in the book, doesn't matter your opinion, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how long you've been saved, is it written in the book? We are people of the book, church. We're people of the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And when we vary, we teach our kid, well, the Bible says this, but. Then we're asking for trouble. Now, I I want to say something right here. Listen, I've said it before. When we start listening to all the advice, and there are people who've studied all their life in medicine and other things like that. And I am not about to ignore those who are the professionals on those things, but let us always season everything everyone says because ultimately everyone has a pre-understanding and agenda they bring to the table. I do, you do, we all do, no matter what. But if we put that aside and we speak, thus saith the Lord, we can do no wrong. Doesn't mean there won't be trouble. Amen? In your spirit right now, I want you to pray for the churches like in California today that we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if the governor of California's goons will be there to immediately arrest Dr. MacArthur, to arrest church members, but that has been threatened that they're going to do whatever they have to do to stop those churches in that area from meeting together. I was very disappointed in one of our Supreme Court justices that sided with the strip clubs and the liquor stores over the churches in Nevada. He says, oh, those can stay open, but the churches, because of the larger number of people, must close. And yet the casinos are full. There's a problem with that, church. What we must understand, he says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, listen, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough ways shall be made smooth. All flesh and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. First of all, if we are to be hope-filled as believers, we need to be the voice. You know, in situations of life, there needs to be voices of reason. There need to be voices of encouragement. There needs to be voices of hope. In your marriage, there are days where you're the voice of reason. You're the voice of hope. You're the voice of comfort when your spouse is struggling, having a hard time. Because even though under God's covenant of marriage, two becomes one, we're still two individual entities in the flesh and sometimes we fall sometimes we falter and sometimes one becomes depressed one becomes despondent and it is important that the other one be the voice of comfort you see the voice was John John fulfilling the voice he was prophesied in Isaiah John was a witness now think about this there's a credential to being a voice for God You know, there's a commercial of the guy that does the uh, uh, Allstate commercials. You know, and he goes in to get him just a cup of coffee. And everybody starts, hey, that's the guy. That's the guy. That's the guy. That's totally the guy. That's him. You know, and they recognize because he has such a distinct voice. And, you know, and he always says the, the, yeah, what does he say, McLean? Uh, (laughs) It's... Uh, it's just very powerful. It grips you when you hear it. And, you know, then there's another commercial where they're supposed to be acting because he's an actor. And the other guy goes off on the, the Allstate saying rather than his lines because his voice when he speaks is so recognizable and so powerful. Well, I want to tell you something. When God speaks in our lives and we speak when God moves us to speak, It may not seem at the time, but it penetrates hearts and it changes lives. I can't do this without Christ standing behind His cross. And if I try in my own flesh, it'll be an utter and complete failure. I have walked out of many a pulpit where I felt totally, totally, completely wasted. And and, and that I, I just did not do what God wanted or felt very insecure and, and very incomplete and was not able to get across what I wanted and someone walk up when I'm trying to still smile and think boy I couldn't even hit that one out of the infield and someone walks up and I just want to get out of there and they walk up and they say preacher man God spoke to my heart today it's one of the most powerful words I've ever heard and I always just think again God you did it again You did it again through this empty vessel. You think God can't use you. You think God can't use you on the job or in school or in your friend's realm? I want want you to hear about John today. First of all, he was a witness of Jesus. He grew up with him, right? You see, he had met the Christ. Before you can be a voice of the Word of God, you've got to know him. What is the first thing John records in the gospel? Not John the Baptist, but John records about John the Baptist, but about the Savior. What's the first thing he says? The very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is referring, as you read, the full context of John 1. He said Jesus is the Word. Well, if we're going to speak a good word, if we're going to speak a powerful word, then we must speak Jesus. And we must know Him. We must have met Him somewhere along the way. You know, many have heard, they know about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. Their parents took them to Sunday school, took them to church. They went with grandma to Bible school. They've heard about Jesus. Oh yeah, I know about Jesus. But there's a difference in knowing about Jesus and knowing him personally. You see, when they would come into a realm of different people, people say, well, I've heard about this Jesus guy. You know, we read about it later in John. We see some say that he's this, and some say he's that, and some say, well, how could anything good come out of Nazareth? How can anything good come from this? Isn't his dad a carpenter? Isn't he... Mary's boy, and and isn't his brothers Jude and James and all that? How could this be? They try all of that, but see, it's just based on what they'd heard. But John the Baptist stood and said, I'm a voice because I know him. I know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know him personally? You know, we all like to collect things from famous people and stuff like that. You know, I've got a shirt signed by President Bush. I've got a program signed by Payne Stewart when he walked off the 18th at the Bell South Classic, the last time he ever played it. I've got signatures from Evander Holyfield and Chipper Jones on his prospect card before he was even a rookie. I've got all different kinds of famous people's autographs and knickknacks and memorabilia and things like that. But I don't know any of them. I know about them. I've met them. But I don't know them personally. I've never shared a meal with any of those that I just mentioned. I've watched them on TV. And I've seen them play the games. And I've seen them lead a country. But I don't know them but in August of 1972, on my face in the altar of Corner Baptist Church, I met the one who died for me. I'd heard about him from my parents. I'd heard about him from my Sunday school teacher. I'd heard about him from my preacher. But that Thursday night of revival, I met him. And kneeling at the foot of the cross, I knew Jesus. You see. We've got to know him. The voice must know who he is. But he was also moved by the Spirit. Think about it. In the womb. You know, God told Jeremiah, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Now I want you to understand something. I want to clear up some false doctrine. We do not believe in any form of Eastern mysticism. We do not believe in karma. Take that word, if you have it in your vocabulary, exit, cut it up, light it on fire, and throw it away. We do not believe in karma. We believe in a recompense, either for sin or a reward for good works, but we do not believe in karma. Karma gives the idea of the whole realm of reincarnation and trying to reach nirvana, the the highest point of enlightenment. But in that, it's open-ended because for anything to exist passing through time, there must be an end, and if there is an end, there must be a beginning. But when it's opened up to reincarnation and a, a continuance, then there must be an openness to the other end. And therefore, they believe they existed prior. By definition, if you are to post-exist in a continuance, then you must existed pre-existent. Now, you follow me? So, what we, we we derive some of this stuff because it just sounds good, especially when we get around funerals we talk about a better place and we talk about angel wings and we talk about stuff that's nowhere even close to being in God's word and one thing we do is we talk about well before you came to earth and God gave you to us as a precious little baby you were just up there on the clouds and oh, listen you didn't exist except in the mind of God you were not somewhere prior to conception but God, in His infinite knowledge, knew you in eternity and sent Jesus to die for you. That's how big the Father's love is for you. Now I want you to get the, <coughs> to get this. <coughs> in the womb, he experienced the power of God. You remember this story? One of the coolest stories of all the Bible. So, John's mother is pregnant with him. And she's about six months pregnant. She's heading into her third trimester. And you can derive all you want from this for being pro-life. End of second trimester, heading into the third trimester. And Mary comes in and just her voice of greeting to her cousin Elizabeth, her voice being that of one who would conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to the Messiah, calls in the power of the Holy Spirit for John the Baptist to leap in his mother's womb. I'm telling you, God does big things when His power is set loose. Not crazy things, now crazy compared to what we think. And sometimes well, God wants you to get out of your comfort zone. But I'm not talking about extra biblical stuff. I'm talking about God moving in our lives so real-like. in his Spirit, Listen, he moved by the Spirit in his womb, in his calling. That was God's presence in his life. You remember, God had a special call on John's life. God's got a special call on your life. He was called to be a Nazarite. Just like Samson. Yet Samson failed, didn't he? Because Samson let his fleshly desires trump God's call. And it cost him. It cost him his power. It cost him his eyesight. It cost him his witness. It cost him his judgeship. And eventually cost him his life. Listen, John the Baptist was moved by the Spirit in his calling. This was the presence of God in his life. This is what Paul tells us, to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. I'm going to tell you, when I get up in the morning is when usually my flesh rages the most. I'm tired. I don't get up well. I need my cup of coffee, all those kinds of things. And I have to pray and get my heart and my mind right as I go into the day. Listen, it was the convicting and convincing power of the Spirit that drew John, that directed John, and used John for God's glory to be the voice. He had met the Christ. He was moved by the Spirit, but he was obedient to the Father from childhood. Now listen to this, mamas and daddies. Do you remember when God... Revealed this to his mom and daddy. His father couldn't speak. He made his dad where he couldn't even open his mouth. Listen, guys, that must have been a struggle. But sometimes I I think all of us need to pray that God would shut our mouth. To keep from saying things we'll regret. God just shut his mouth. And God used Elizabeth to proclaim what God had done. But then when she gave birth and God had directed what would happen, God loosened the lips of his father. And they said, oh, let's name him this and let's name him that. And all the women got together and God loosened the lips of his father. And he said, his name will be John. And God has a call on my son's life. He will be a Nazarite, a razor shall not touch his hair. He shall not touch of the fruit of the vine in its fermentation. He will not follow the guidelines that society has set forth. Listen, from a childhood, he was obedient to the Father, mostly because as a child, his life was being directed and urged toward where he ought to go through godly parents. There's coming a day, the older we get, our influence begins to wane in our children's lives. They get older, they start influence, uh, taking influence from other things. And, and I'm not saying bad things, but other things. They get older, they get their own jobs, they get their own education. They get. And, and honestly, don't we want to train them to think for themselves? But I'm going to tell you who you don't want to think for them is liberal, atheistic professors and pundits who will steal the joy and the faith in God right out of them. We want people teaching our children and guiding our children who believe in the same God we do. And I'm going to just tell you, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in any scientist. Or judge, or or or, or uh, a doctor, or anyone else for that matter, who puts more faith in Darwin and co- thinking that we somehow, through the Origin of Species, were the strong ones and survive rather than in the beginning God. Listen from childhood through godly parents, but he was obedient against society. Now you think. You ever walked in the mall? Not lately. Or go to a ball game? Definitely not lately. And you just see something, you're like, wow, they come out in public? Well, you've been to Walmart, Statesboro, you've seen it. I mean, who would have ever dreamed? And we can't say anything. You know, if we see them wearing Hello Kitty pajamas in Walmart when we send our kids to school in them. And I'm not talking about seven-year-olds. I'm talking about 17-year-olds. Pajamas are for the bedroom. Not the school, not the Walmart. I know I sound like a legalistic, oh, independent, fundamental. Uh, I resemble that. But the thing is, there are just some people that just look out of the norm. You know, have you ever listen to somebody on a blog or you've read a book by someone and you're like, man, this is powerful. This is powerful stuff. And you meet them and it's almost like dashed expectations. You know, you, you read or you listen and, and you hear this voice almost of a, a Charlton Heston or the Allstate guy. And when you see him, it's this little frail little old man. I remember listening to Dr. John Phillips when he would speak in that, that British accent coming from Wales and, and he would, I mean he could have read a phone book and I would have sat there mesmerized. And he would read and he would speak the words of life from God's word so powerfully and I met him. Oh, I saw him on stage at First Jack's and I thought, man, what's the deal with the old black glasses, horn-rimmed glasses and all that but then I had him come preach for me. What I didn't fully understand at the time was it would be his last Bible conference for he was suffering early onset dementia and it was moving very fast. And I would sit with him and he had become a very frail, weakened old man. But the Spirit of God was still alive in him and moved in him. Well, John didn't fit the bill. He didn't look, you know, he wasn't dressed in priestly robes. He didn't come with all of his regalia. What did he have on? What did he have on? Do what? Camel fur. He just had, in my mind, can I tell you, if it would have been died, he would have looked like Fred Flintstone. That's the way I see John the Baptist in my head. Is Fred Flintstone. I don't know if he ever said yabba dabba do. I don't know. But listen, his spiritual hunger trumped seasonal sin. He ate locusts and wild honey. He didn't sit down at the king's table. He didn't have to have the best stuff. He didn't go to the all-you-can-eat falafel night. He stayed out there in the wilderness. He was doing what God called him. And I'm going to tell you something. We must stop feeling like we've got to match up and meet society where it's at. God didn't call you to be like society. He called you to be a voice in society. But then notice the cry. This is just the voice. And for you to be a voice in this wilderness, the voice in this world, number one, you've got to know Jesus. Number two, you must be directed and moved by the Spirit. Number three, you must be obedient to the Father. But now, notice the cry in verse four. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You see, John was not just a witness of Jesus so that he could be a voice. Now, as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John was a witness for Jesus. Jesus. God didn't save you just to keep you from hell. God saved you for heaven, but he also saved you to be a soul winner to other people to experience the same thing you've experienced. How do you get saved and not tell anybody? How do you get so old and settled in your faith that you never share the good news of Jesus Christ? You heard a while ago and you all know that story. You've heard it for eight and a half years about when the Lord saved me, how the Lord saved me. The Lord, if you're saved, you were saved the exact same way. May have been at a different time, may have been at a different age, but you were still saved exactly like me. Aren't you glad you're saved? But when's the last time you were so happy about what God had given you, you wanted somebody else to experience what you got? Pandemic does not have to stop evangelism, church. It doesn't have to stop us from sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. People are still being saved. You see, when we see the cry, we notice the place. It was in the wilderness. And I can't help but think back to the psalmist. And I want to read it into your memory. That many of you can quote. And that is one of the most famous scriptures of all God's Word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, listen not just to who the Lord is and the shepherd, but what's going on and where he's at. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restore, uh, uh, he maketh me to lie down. He said, "To lie down in green pastures and leads him beside the still waters." The first of all is the place of the wilderness. Now, as we experience God in our life and we become the cry, we've got to look around. Are we not living in a wilderness where? God is being rejected in the halls of justice, rejected in the halls of the school, rejected even in some mainline churches to where God... We want to dumb down and hide and say that. Y'all need to keep that to yourself and go hide in the closet. I'm going to tell you, if there's ever been a time, and you say, Preacher, you say this every election cycle, I'm telling you because we need it more than ever before. If there's ever been a time where God's people need to cry out in the wilderness that Jesus is the only way, it's in the next 90 days. Because we're living. You know what a wilderness means? A wilderness doesn't mean barren, but it means uncultivated, unhabited surroundings. I went to Colorado one time hunting, and we went out in these places, and one place in a place called Rifle, Cal, uh, Rifle Colorado, we went to this ranch, and down in the the, the basin at the bottom of this hill was old farmhouse and the old barns and there was some cattle and stuff like that. The turkeys would come down there in the pasture and stuff uh, and we, we would see the, the mule deer coming around and coming out and we would go and try to get up into those mountains where we would find the elk and the big mule deer and all that and I thought you know it would get real easy to get turned around right here. Because everything looks the same. It's just straight up and straight down. It was a wilderness. And so many, the wilderness literally means a place of no direction. People are living in the wilderness every day. But God's called us to be a voice in the wilderness. You may be the one person that talks someone off the ledge and you don't even know it. A word of encouragement. Every day we ought to get up and say, Lord, help me encourage somebody today. Lord, may my words, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be solely focused on you today. You know, the Bible tells us that a word fitly spoken at the right time is like apples of gold in frames of silver. I don't know about you, I've, I've meditated on that scripture for decades. And all I can think of is the most beautiful, awe inspiring painting hanging in the greatest museum of all the world. And everybody is ignoring everything else but this one portrait. That's what the words of a godly person look like. You see, we're to cry in this place of a wilderness. It's a place of valleys. He tells us very clearly here in Luke chapter 3. He said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight. The rough ways shall be made smooth. First of all, the valleys. What do the valleys look like in your life? What do the valleys look like in our lives? Well, a valley is a place of depression. It's where it drops. And I don't know about you, but I I have to face that. Not seeing people, not going through the same stuff, not getting up on Sunday morning or going to bed on Saturday night, thinking, oh man, I get to walk the halls and Sunday school classes and hear the chatter of children and walk by our high school classes and to meet those from the blue tree or the or, or the new beginnings class around the coffee maker to greet our senior adults as they come in I, it's been devastating in my spirit for days to be there on Wednesday night and to hear the question, just sit around and Talk about what God is doing in our life. It gets so heavier. we're living in a valley. But God said we're to be a voice where there's deep depression. David said in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not the valley of death. You see, Goliath didn't realize it, but he was in the valley of death. They called it the Valley of Elah. It was the Valley of Death for Goliath. He never dreamed that. But for believers, listen to me. I talked to Brother Liston last night. He called me and we just talked. And I want to tell you something. We, We need to pray for them. But if there's anybody that fully understands that they didn't walk through the Valley of Death, just the shadow of it, that God's still in control, him and his wife understand that. And God is using them and moving on them, but Satan's going to try to defeat them at every step, and we need to be there to encourage them. You hear me? We need to love on them, both physically, emotionally, and financially. There's a way for us to give through the Titan 11's Association. You'd like to give to support that family, through these troubling times, I really encourage you to do so. They have a new baby coming tomorrow. Tomorrow. They're experiencing things that most of us could never experience over a lifetime, all in a matter of a week. But he talked to me last night, and I'm going to tell you something. I told him. I said, you know, I bragged on being your mentor. And he said, well, you are. I said, I don't know about that. He said, what do you mean? I said, listen, I'd like to refer to you like I was always referred to by my pastor as one of my preacher boys. I said, but I want to tell you something. I think you've taught me a whole lot more lately than I've ever thought to teach you. We can't understand that. Don't even try. But what I do know is what Isaiah said and what John said, comfort. Comfort. From our God. It's a place of valleys. It's a place of mountains. Where listen, what does a mountain give us an idea? Of being on the top, being on the pinnacle. Some of you, in your career, you've reached the pinnacle. Uh, financially, you've reached the pinnacle. You have reached your pinnacle in, in maxing out in, in your exercises and in your family and in your children. And oh, you have arrived. Let me refer and remind you of a man who had arrived that God called a fool. For he thought in arrival, he could just stay there. But you see, what goes up must come down. And he teaches us that we must be a voice in the mountains where there is pride and doubt. J- uh, David said in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When we have doubt and, uh, uh, over the things in this world, when we get up, we can see more. The older we get, the more we can see and the more we can be caused to doubt. He said, you've anointed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. It reminds us not to be prideful in thinking we've arrived on our own. But then he tells us about how he would make the path straight, those that were crooked, the curvy roads. David once again said in verse 3, He restoreth my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is where... We meet the roads. Have you ever been on a curvy road that's so curvy you met yourself coming back? If you've ever rode up through as in North Georgia or you went from Helen over to Blairsville by the Deer Lodge and those roads, the last time we did that, Emily and Becky, they're both like, Oh, I think I'm getting sick. And they don't get sick in the car. But it was just left, right, left, right. There's a place called the, the Dragon's Tale where it's famous for people riding motorcycles because of all the curves in the short distance. If you ever watch the race up Pikes, Pikes Peak in Colorado, it's just back and forth, back and forth, up the hill. It's curvy roads. God says that a voice of reason, a voice of comfort is a voice to cause those roads to be straight where there's dread, where there's danger. There's a friend of mine I went to high school with And she had gotten her a new pink Harley. She named Bubblicious. Now you just got to know my buddy. It fit her. We grew up from first grade all the way through just like Mark. Mark and her big buddies because of the Harleys. She lives in Colorado now. But not too many years ago when she first got Bubblicious, she was riding through the dragon's tail. And there's video of where, you know, it just snuck up on her. She wasn't going too fast or anything like that. And a curve got there quicker than she thought, and straight off into the woods she went. Tore the bike all to pieces, but she was all right. But that road, that curve, the danger snuck up on her. It got there quicker than she thought. When I was 16, had my license for three weeks, leaving church, not leaving a bar, not leaving a bonfire, leaving RAs on Wednesday night with a car slam full of boys in my granddaddy's old Buick. The ugliest green Buick you've ever. That's all my dad and Granddad knew. They didn't know there was white. They didn't know there was a red. They didn't even know there was a gray or silver or black. All they knew was green. Daddy had a green car. My grandparents had a green car. And My granddad get another green car because his grandson on Wednesday night was coming down this little gravel road, taking one boy home, and the curve got there quicker than he thought. And we didn't make it. And off into the side of a tree, it hit this way, folded the car up this way, went up, come down, hit another tree this way, bent it up this way. It was totaled seven ways to Sunday. One boy was knocked out. One boy had glass all in him. It was a devastating night. They've since paved that road and straightened that curve out. Last time we went down through there, I said, I want to just go through here and see. And all that, but I could still see the mark on the tree. You see, God's called us, even with the marks, in our lives, that we are to make the path straight for for others. Don't don't empower someone to drive recklessly through life around the curve, but encourage them by straightening the way for them. Rough ways, this is where defeat happens, where there's defect defects in life, the rough and ragged way. He said that last verse, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He didn't say surely uh, goodness and mercy shall pave all the roads smooth. No. He said it will follow me no matter what and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's defects in our life. Things are not going to be the way you always want them. But God Will cause us to help smooth the rough for others. But then I want you to notice with me. In Luke, verse, chapter 3, verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance and begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham and our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now also the axe is laid upon the root of the trees and every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I want you to understand something about the cry. We saw the place, but... There's a purpose. You have purpose in this life as a voice in the wilderness. You know what your purpose is? It's not to make a lot of money. Now that may be part of it, that God uses you. Every person that makes a lot of money is not lost and living in sin. There's a lot of wonderful, godly, wealthy people. But according to the word, a lot fewer than some may think. But there are people who have given and served. So people who are wealthy are not evil by definition, okay? So I don't ever want you to think that I'm saying that. But what I do want you to understand is that God didn't call you just to succeed and get trophies. How many? If you're my age and you played Little League ball, did you get trophies? Anybody get trophies? You got trophies? Scott, you get trophies growing up? You never play? <laughs> you got trophies there? Do you know where they're at? When you're in Little League, you still got them displayed? They're in a box. Same place mine are. In a box. I don't even know where the box is. You know, I can still tell you the name of the team. played for the Cubs, and I played for the Phillies, and, you know, I played for those teams. I remember the name, but I don't... I don't know where the trophies are. Now I can brag about all this. I wasn't the best player. I wasn't even close to being the best player. I was just a player in a uniform on a field. All that stuff fades away. But what God did call me to do is proclaim, thus saith the Lord. And the greatest, the greatest Example of reward in my life is not in a trophy case in this world, but a trophy of grace where someone has heard the gospel and claimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior. You see, the only way, he said in verse 8, is through repentance. You can't get to God anyway except to say, Father, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, I'm broken. Remember... When he told Israel, he said, if you'll repent and come back to me, you'll be all right. And they didn't. And when they didn't, God says, okay, this is what's going to happen. And they were taken into exile. They went into bondage. They went to Babylon. They went to Persia. And their lives were wrecked. Church, we need to get on our knees and repent. We need to pray that God would move in our lives, in our country's lives. We don't need less of church, we need more. But not in worldly church, but in the church of the living God. God using us to evangelize and disciple. Using us to encourage and to minister. It comes only through repentance. And I want you to understand something. You may have sat through this entire message and thought, this is good stuff for somebody else. Because at my age and you just got to know what I'm facing, what I've gone through and all these stuff. You've got to understand there is no excuses. You say, well, I wasn't raised like you. Peter and Andrew were apostles. Am I right? But they were raised on a fishing boat not at the feet of godly parents. John the Baptist was raised by godly parents. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, with whoever He wants. And God wants you. And there can be no excuses. They said, Oh, but you know, well, we have Abraham to our father. We're, we're trusting in the old way, doing old things. The old God, we, we've got it figured out. He said, No! There can be no excuses for there is no other. Acts 4.12 says that there's no other name. Under heaven, given among men where you buy, you must be saved. And then the last verse, the purpose is that without Jesus, there is no escape. He said, the axe is laid unto the root of the trees for everyone that bringeth no fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. So, let us be hope-filled with real hope. Let us be the voice. Let us make the cry with great purpose in every place we go. But in closing, let us be hopeful. You see, John the Baptist came and said, hey, you don't even realize it, but he's been right here amongst us. Start, look over real quick and I'll, I'll finish. John chapter 1. John, verse 1, or chapter 1. Verse 25 says, And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptize thou then if, if thou be not that Christ or Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy to unloose. You see, we need to be hopeful of the Christ that's already been here. Christ in us because of His finished work in us. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us the hope of glory. Because Christ has already come. The finished work of the cross. But then Christ in us looking to the future. The future coming again. You see, he told him. he said, he's been here. You don't even know him. But look what he said in verse 29. Man, I can only imagine this verse and at this moment must have resembled what it's going to look like on the day of rapture. The next day John, seeing Jesus coming unto them, said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Christ in us is the hopefulness. Looking to the future coming of Him again, that He is coming. uh, Titus 2.13 said it's a blessed hope of the great appearing of our great God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope. But I want you to understand as they come to the instruments, John one thirty four says this, And I saw, and I bear record, that this is the Son of God. Church, there is hope. Real hope. You remember back in the 90s, the Southern Baptists did a whole big Emphasis called there, There's Hope. They made little paperback Bibles and we gave them out by the millions. It's one thing to give out Bibles. It's another thing to speak truth into someone's life and to explain. Because even a well-known, well-versed, well-educated, wealthy Ethiopian couldn't understand, could he? But when Philip got up in there, he began to explain the Scriptures and said, it must be Jesus. And he said, well, what must I do? What hinders me from being baptized? Much like with John, said, the repentance must come at the feet of Jesus Christ. Church, if you feel hopeless today, you're saved, without a doubt, you know you're going to heaven, but you just feel hopeless. Won't you come and pray, God, night of fire in me that I may cry with my voice there's hope in Jesus there's comfort coming if you're lost and you don't know Jesus you don't understand hope you need to come right now right here socially distanced if the spirit moves on your life you need to move John went into the wilderness because that's where God wanted him to go he didn't care what people thought he didn't care what people said He left his family behind. He left his comfort and went where God called him. Will you come to Jesus? Do what God's called you to do. Stand and come. There's hope. All the way, my Savior.